You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. As you may know, I'm a big fan of taking saunas. They've got numerous health benefits, so they make you feel great. And they're not a bad place to just escape your kids for a bit of me time. So I'm super excited to announce that this season of Well and Good is brought to you by Found Space. These guys are an incredible infrared sauna company. And they are giving away one of their infrared saunas to our listeners. Yes, that's right. They're giving away a whole sauna. So listen along and find out how you can win. And we are back. It's been almost two years since we recorded the last Well and Good podcast. For those listeners who are familiar with the Well and Good podcast, you may remember that I used to host this show with my wife, Matilda. Well, she has uh, now started recording her own podcast, something separate, and that's going to be coming up very soon. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. It's very exciting. But in the meantime, it's me chatting to some amazing experts and learning some really interesting and insightful information like today's podcast with Diana Rogers. I felt very lucky that I was able to make this podcast work. Diana was only in New Zealand for a short amount of time, over here promoting her film, The Sacred Cow, and uh, speaking at a number of conferences, and she managed to squeeze me into her busy schedule. Diana is a dietitian, author, filmmaker, speaker, and advocate for sustainable, nutritious, and equitable food systems. She's also the executive director of the Global Food Justice Alliance, which places her at the forefront of the issue of animal-based diets. We've all heard the ethical, environmental, and nutritional concerns that surround eating meat, but Diana's lifetime of work have led her to the conclusion that eating meat can be done sustainably and ethically. And not only that, she argues that it's actually really important that we do eat meat and animal-based products. We need it for our nutrition, and it promotes diversity in ecosystems that's vital for a healthy environment. So this is a really thought-provoking discussion on an important topic. If you've ever questioned eating meat or wondered how much you should, then this is the one for you. What is the most interesting or weirdest or, you know, strangest, like, health thing you've ever done? For example, for me, eating raw liver is Mm. quite, you know, people think that's a bit strange. Oh, man. I really don't like being cold, so I've never done one of those cold plunge things. I just can't know. I do not know. You can't even pay me enough money to do it. I've, you know, I, I actually have a brand new chest freezer that just arrived at my house before I came to this I podcast. I don't I'm, doubt it. I'm going to convert that into an ice bath. <laughs> so next time you're here, you can come up. I and, will not. <laughs> you should. I think you'll enjoy it. I will. You probably won't enjoy it, but you'll you'll appreciate it afterwards. No, I won't. Okay. No, I'll just be really cold. Okay. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, raw liver is probably a a weird thing that you've done as well, though, right? Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in wearing continuous glucose monitors. I think those are super eye-opening for people. Mm. One year, I tracked every single thing I ate and how it made me feel. So that's, I guess, kind of a weird thing. It was right after I had my first child. It was before I went paleo. It was right in between that time when I was gluten-free but still had these blood sugar roller coaster type feelings where I, you know, if I missed a meal, I was sweating. I mean, really, I was in metabolic syndrome. I didn't understand what was going on. I kept going to doctors demanding they test me for diabetes because I thought for sure I had it. And they kept saying, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. And so before I learned about paleo and, and eating a lower carb type diet, I tracked every single thing I ate and how it made me feel for an entire year. Wow, good on you. That would be incredibly tiring. I was just trying to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. You're here for two weeks looking around New Zealand. 
I am. Have you had a chance to look at the farming practices in New Zealand and how they compare to America? Totally, I have. The great thing about what's going on here is that everything is grass-based already. You know, the whole world right now is very obsessed with trying to reduce methane and trying to green up and everything. The practices here in New Zealand are already almost like gold standard for regenerative, sustainable agriculture. So it's it's a really great position New Zealand is in right now. Oh, that is so good to hear. Yeah. Because like, you know, in New Zealand we get, well, we kind of thought that we were this clean, green mm-hmm. country. And then more recently, probably in the last like five or 10 years, it's been kind of going the other way. And we've, we've been uh, had it hammered into us that, you know, the way that we're farming is detrimental to the environment. And, and it, I mean, it, I'm not arguing that it isn't because there are certainly aspects of, the, of it that are, but it's nice to hear from someone else's perspective that we're doing things right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can only talk about the beef sector and sheep. Uh, I mean, that's my kind of wheelhouse is, is protein and animal source proteins and pasture-based livestock. And there's just so much misunderstanding out there about the methane emitted from cattle and how it's ruining the environment. So that's what I'm here really to do uh, here in New Zealand is try to explain that the way we look at the methane from cattle should be very different than the way that we look at it from fossil fuels, and it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. And that the value of animal source proteins is so high, and all this going vegan or eating less meat even – there's a lot of unintended consequences to that. Yeah. And I think you've managed to really capture a lot of that really well in The Sacred Cow, your film. I watched it about a year ago and I, I thought it was brilliant. And so I was really excited to talk to you. I feel like there's kind of maybe three aspects to this whole conversation. It's kind of like the ethical aspect, sustainability, and then nutritional. And I think that the ethical thing is, you know, it's a little bit tricky to really speak to because it's very subjective and you can't really measure it so well. But like the other two aspects, I think I'd love to talk about today. Why did you make the film in the the start? I'll talk about that and also just a brief thing about the ethics. Mm. So I really don't think you can have an intelligent ethical debate about whether or not we should eat meat unless you fully understand the environmental impact and benefits that livestock have and the nutritional consequences of what it looks like when we pull meat away from people and all the devastation that that can cause and how elitist that is to tell people to eat less meat. So there's a lot of ethical issues going on even in the plant-based world with, I mean, human slavery actually happens still. And so just because something is a plant and not an animal does not mean that you get to have a free conscience and that nothing died for you. So that's why ethics is important, but I always address that last because I like to address nutrition and environment first so that by the time we get to ethics, It's not about, well, it's wrong to kill a beautiful animal. You have a better understanding of all the other things that come into play when Mm. we're having an ethical debate about eating meat. Okay, so where do we even start this conversation? (laughs) Like, do you normally approach it from the nutritional side of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and that's really my background, and you asked how I got into all of this. So I have always been interested in nutrition. I was really sick as a kid and actually very unathletic. The gym class is actually the worst nightmare for me. I was the last one picked for all the teams and everything. I was super underweight and low muscle tone, and I didn't know until I was 26 that I had undiagnosed celiac disease. So I went gluten-free. That solved some of my problems, but I still had a lot of blood sugar 
swings up and down and didn't understand. I was mostly vegetarian at the time and didn't understand why, you know, my gluten-free bread, gluten-free pasta, gluten-free pizza, gluten-free cookies, gluten-free toast in the morning, of course, with no butter on it because that's bad, you know, why that diet wasn't serving me. And so it wasn't until I read this book called The Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf, um, who is now probably my best friend, that my life completely went from like black and white to color. It was more dramatic than even going gluten-free for me. And so just eating real food and really being mindful of, you know, only doing processed food in very small doses, really focusing on protein and animal source foods was so life-changing that I actually decided to change my career and go back to school to become a dietitian when my kids were little. I was in food marketing before that. So I started my nutrition practice, and I just noticed paleo worked for everybody, some version of it, right? Like some people needed, you know, higher carbs or whatever. Most people did pretty well with a lowish carb kind of paleo type keto-ish diet. Then I noticed that this anti-meat narrative was going beyond just meat's going to kill you, right? Because that was around for a while, and, and it was, like, so stupid, saturated fat is bad. And Can you give us a brief, like, history lesson on that? Like, why was there that narrative? Like, firstly, fat is bad, and then that meat is going to kill you. Sure. Well, basically, there was this guy, Ansel Keys, who came out with a study, the seven-country study, when really there was a lot more countries than seven, but he cherry-picked these seven countries to make a perfect graft showing that the more saturated fat a country consumed— the more disease they had, the more likely they were going to die, the higher rates of cancer. But what you can't do in science is compare a country like Mexico to a country like Finland and say, well, it must be the meat. (laughs) But that's basically what he was doing. And, I mean, I can make all kinds of comparisons. In the presentation I did yesterday, I showed a perfect correlation between cheese consumption and deaths by getting tangled in a bed sheet. (laughs) Does that really correlate? It does, perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) There's also another one with um, films that Nicolas Cage has been in. He's an American actor with the divorce rate in Maine. Perfect correlation. Nicolas Cage. I wonder if he knows that. (laughs) (laughs) And so nutrition research is really hard to do. So they rely often on these association studies, which can only show trends. So when you compare a typical vegetarian population to a typical American meat-eating population, you're probably going to see worse health in the meat-eating population. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the meat. You have to look at all these other what they call confounding factors. So they're lifestyle factors. So a vegetarian population is much more likely to eat fresh fruits and vegetables, they're more likely to exercise, meditate, they're less likely to drink and smoke, you know, all those things that we know are good for you, right? Mm, Your typical American meat eater is probably eating a lot of other stuff with that meat, drinking and smoking more often, less likely to exercise. And so when they've looked at people that shop at health food stores and they've compared omnivores to vegetarians and vegans, So therefore, kind of adjusting for that lifestyle, they found absolutely no difference at all in mortality between the vegetarians and the omnivores, but actually the vegans, they found, were uh, less healthy. Okay. Anyway, so there's never been a study showing that eating meat will directly cause any kind of disease or death. Right. There's just been these These correlative— These associations. Yeah. Yeah, So it's it's all just 
ridiculous science. It's not real science. Okay. So that's where it sort of comes from. Does it all come from that one study? That and then a bunch of other political things. There's a lot of money to be made in the 80s from low-fat food. So it was really – it was initially driven from this idea that saturated fat was the bad thing. And so that's why we had fake butter and – all these snacks that were low in fat but super high in sugar and calories and people were just getting sicker and fatter from eating all these things. Unfortunately, now the argument against – so butter has been vindicated largely, yeah. right? We, we've realized that margarine and, and fake butter substitutes were a joke. But now the focus is on cows, because not only are they going to kill you from their saturated fat, which is an old – should be dead idea, but they're also contributing to climate change and they're beautiful puppy dog-like looking animals that we shouldn't be killing in order to live when we can just eat a plastic-wrapped protein puck Mm. instead made from plants. And so this carbon idea and methane and, and the greenhouse gases and cattle contributing to climate change is really overblown and it just kind of gives extra fuel to the argument. And this idea that greenhouse gases from from livestock is the largest contributor to climate change, which a lot of people really do believe, that's a narrative largely driven by the ultra-processed food industry that is making a lot of money from fake proteins like Beyond Burger, Impossible Foods. Their objective is to make a lot of money and to end livestock farming. Wow. It's almost like you can have studies to prove whatever you want. Right. Is that how you feel about some studies? Like I, I look at some science, or I, or I kind of read a little bit of science about things, and I've, I've started to lose a bit of faith even in science because I'm like, I don't really know what I can trust because I'm not the type of person that really knows how to read scientific literature, like you know, peer-reviewed studies and really dig into, oh, I'm going to look at the methods and, and gauge for myself whether or not they did a, a valid effort at it. And so it's like, how do I know what I can trust? Well, and we can't even necessarily trust science anymore. So there was this global burden of disease study, which is a perfect example of even why we can't trust science anymore. So the global burden of disease is published by a very credible medical journal, The Lancet. It is what the UK food policy is set upon. And it ranks, you know, what things that we're doing and what foods that we're eating are most likely to be contributing to this global burden of disease, right? And there was this huge controversy not too long ago, and it's still kind of happening right now, where in 2017, the deaths attributed to overconsumption of red meat were listed on this study, but it was a very tiny, it was not even like a 1%. And then two years later, in 2019, it was 36 times more likely to kill you. But there was no science that had come out that was showing any increase in death from red meat. This kind of thing that's happening, the the researchers never showed evidence to back up their reasoning for why red meat was all of a sudden more deadly. They had set the tolerable risk level. It's I think it's the TR, I can't remember what it's called, some acronym, the TRE, tolerance risk exposure, at zero. Zero red meat is okay to eat if you don't want to die, basically. Wow. So someone who reads that will will think that red meat's going to kill them and they need to avoid red meat. And then we have the whole environmental thing too. So I always like to start with nutrition just because, look, animal source foods are the most important foods to humans, period. Is there any fear of overconsuming, and that will cause ill health? 
I mean, you can overconsume calories, and that's not good. You know, we don't need to eat more than our body requires. But so, like, so I guess, like, say you're provided you are a healthy lifestyle outside of your nutrition. So, like, not smoking, yep. you're not sedentary, you're not overconsuming alcohol. Right. Then, what you can pretty much eat as much meat as you want. I like to recommend that people start at about double the RDA of protein, so like 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, Mm -hmm. which usually, even for a small woman, means about 100 grams of protein a day, which the general public is not eating. So that's about the size of your palm or hand per meal Mm -hmm. if you eat three times a day. That's kind of the size of protein that that I like to recommend for people and— I do recommend vegetables, too, and and some fruits. But, you know, we do see people on these carnivore diets. I'm sure some of your listeners follow some of the folks in the carnivore community. They're fine. We're not seeing scurvy. We're not seeing people dying of heart attacks. I mean, Sean Baker is very healthy. He's published his blood reports I don't think it's necessary to go that extreme for the average person, but I do think a meat-centric diet is not going to be harmful. Mm. I've tried those Have diets you? as well. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had to go um, being carnivore for a month, month and a half. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt great on it. I felt I didn't feel too different because I think I was. I think when you're following a loosely paleo-based lifestyle, you're pretty much going to feel the best that you will anyway, based on, you know, from a food perspective. So at least that's my experience. So then Mm -hmm. um, dropping out the vegetables and fruit, um, I was eating a little bit of fruit, but mostly just dropping out green vegetables, basically. I didn't feel that too different. Although I was eating raw liver and I did notice an uptake in my energy levels. Every now and then when I'd have my raw liver, about half an hour after I'd eat it, I'd notice I'd like noticeably had more energy. It was quite interesting. That's the one thing that I still do. I still eat raw liver. Good on you. Mm. Yeah. I have to do desiccated liver capsules because I can't get liver down. A lot a lot of people can't. Or, you know, there's some great blends out there. I don't know if you have them down here, but ground meat mince blends that are muscle tissue plus some organ meat mm. in it. We don't really. Oh, okay. um, but you can go to your local butcher and ask them to do it, and okay. sometimes they will. Okay. Or you can do it at home. You can buy organ meat and blend it up. I've, mm-hmm. I've done that before too. It's a little bit involved, but it's. Uh, I think it's worth it for sure to get those organ meats into mm-hmm. you. So going back to the nutritional side of things. So... Mm-hmm. Eating red meat is not really the issue, and eating animal products is not really the issue. Why is there the narrative that eating plant-based is superior from a health point of view? I mean, a lot of it is just virtue signaling. People feel guilty that an animal had to die, especially an animal that reminds them, you know, when they look at a steak, it's red. So it looks bloody. It, it reminds them that of their own mortality. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes into this anti-meat kind of guilt feeling. So, I mean, they don't have a leg to stand on as far as the health goes at all. The majority of doctors and dietitians do believe that animal source foods are important and humans are omnivores. I mean, that's a basic fact. Humans are omnivores. So I just don't agree with the people that have gone vegan. And of course, you see these vegan influencers that are going back to 
eating meat. I mean, we know that about 85% of everyone who tries a vegan diet gives it up within three months. So it's just not a super sustainable way of eating. And it's definitely not the most nutrient-dense way of eating, too. I mean, if you're just going to – there's this great app called uh, Chronometer that I like to use. It's a food tracker, calorie tracker. It doesn't only track your macros, though. It also tracks your micronutrients. I actually did a nutrient density challenge with actually some friends of mine in Australia where we were all trying to max out our micronutrients and get 100% of everything, like B12, selenium, like all that stuff. Cool. It was really fun. And so chronometer, you can do that. It's C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R. Awesome. I'll check that out. We'll we'll put that in the show notes too. So anyone can go in and just enter four ounces of sirloin steak and see – what they're getting not only for protein but for B12, for all the amino acids, for everything. But you can also enter you know, four ounces of cooked kidney beans and see what that generates out. It's just no comparison at all, animal source foods. And whenever there's a nutrient that is in animal foods versus plant foods, our bodies prefer the animal source foods. So heme iron is the most bioavailable iron to us. Uh, Retinol, which is the form of vitamin A that our bodies need, is ready in that form in animal source foods. And in plant source foods, it's beta carotene, which is what makes carrots orange or sweet potatoes. And about 50% of all humans can't easily make the conversion from beta carotene to vitamin A. And so that's why some people tend to do a little bit better on a vegan-type diet, but a lot of people don't. It's a combination of genetics and gut health, your existing health and and mental status before you went on this vegan diet. Uh, So there's a lot of reasons why certain people might seem to kind of do okay where other people just crash and burn really fast. Yeah, yeah, I, I do understand there's, um, there's definitely a genetic component to it as well. I, um, I recently did some genetic testing and my results showed that I wasn't as suitable to a, a vegetarian diet as some other people and I, I definitely had a high protein requirement. What's like the minimum amount of meat that would then you'd still be able to achieve like optimal health? So say you're someone who is trying to, for ethical reasons, they don't want to kill too many animals, right? So they don't want to eat more meat than they have to for peak health, you know? And and then they want to fill up the rest of their diet with fruit and vegetables and stuff. That's a tricky question because do they have an autoimmune disease? Are they over 40? Are they exercising? Right. Mm. Are they highly stressed, recovering from a burn? I mean, there's just so many weird factors in there. So I'd say the Maybe the population that might do best on less protein would be someone who doesn't necessarily care about their muscle mass, who has a relatively sedentary lifestyle, who, you know, doesn't really want a sex drive. I mean, like a monk. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) I guess they go hand in hand. And actually, a lot of the anti-meat kind of narrative started from a religious perspective perspective in the United States from the Seventh-day Adventist community because they believed that eating meat gave you impure thoughts. Right. And And so— Seventh-day Adventists, are they also the ones that came up with breakfast being the most important meal? Yes. Right. And they own sanitarium foods. Um, So they were really the largest drivers behind this idea that not eating meat made you pure. And so that's where we're getting this kind of like halo around— not eating meat. Mm. But 
of course, animals are going to die either way. And especially in the farming of monocrops, which are what cereals are made out of, entire ecosystems die. There's a lot of chemical use. There's all the insects that the birds need to eat are annihilated because they also eat the crops and waterways are destroyed. And in a grass-based farming system where you have animals on the land, that land is teeming with life. And I think we showed that pretty well in the film Sacred Cow, which anyone can see on Amazon Prime uh, if they can't come to my film screening that's coming up. Yes. Or, um, or Apple. I, I watch oh, on Apple. Apple. Yeah, we okay. can get on Apple TV. Yeah. And so the idea is the more life you have in an ecosystem, the more resilient it is. So the the more diverse, the more insects, the more predators, the more critters running through the grass, the more bacteria in the soil, the more healthy and resilient that is going to be. And so what you don't want is a food system that's based on only monocrops, only one crop for as far as the eye can see. And that's what largely the plant-based diets are based on. Sorry, just cutting in here. I'm just going to share a little quick message from our sponsor, Foundspace, and also fill you in on how you can win that sauna. Now, as a listener of Well and Good, you're probably someone who prioritizes your health and well-being. Well, have you ever tried an infrared sauna before, or have you even considered having one in your own home? I have a sauna at my place, and it's been the best investment in my health. I seriously think it has been. Now, since 2008, Foundspace has installed thousands of -of state-of-the-art low-EMF infrared saunas across Australia, and they now deliver and install anywhere in New Zealand. An infrared sauna is such a powerful health tool because it addresses multiple fundamental areas of your health in one session. They help you to de-stress and sleep well, manage your weight, find relief from chronic pain, and recover efficiently from workouts, plus heaps more. And they don't just sell you a sauna, the Foundspace sauna specialists are ready to chat about your health challenges and goals, help you find the perfect sauna for your home, and then integrate it into your routine to get the best results. To enter the chance to win your very own Foundspace sauna, just hit the link in the show notes. The show notes can be found in the description of this podcast on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. So go on, get entering. The competition is only open to New Zealand residents and entries close 31st of October, 2022. Now back to the chat. Yeah, let's jump over to like the sustainability aspect of it. Mm -hmm. How did monocropping come about? I guess we were probably practicing traditional farming practices that closely resembled regenerative agriculture for probably centuries. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know. And then was it sort of like following the Second World War we had some issues. There was a lot of stress on the food production system. And so then they, they started using science to then start cultivating these fields and then with synthetic inputs, um, fertilizers and stuff. And then that's when we started just monocropping. And then when did the cows come off the grass? Like, how did this all happen? <laughs> yeah, you basically summed it up really well. And I, we go through it in, in the book in a lot more detail. But we did have a secretary of agriculture in the U.S. who basically said, hedgerow to hedgerow, plant as much as you possibly can. And that's really when farming went from kind of family farms, small scale to massive industrial scale. There were many other factors that allowed for that to happen. Nitrogen fertilizer was also huge, uh, and that happened right after World War II. 
And so we just started producing as much food as possible. And I, when you have a surplus of food and you control the food supply, especially going into other countries, you can now control those countries too. And so that's why the U.S. is such a grain superpower mm. um, because we are able to then control other countries as well with our U.S. foreign aid policy. Well, that's um, kind of scary. Oh, yes. And so cattle were kind of pushed onto more what they call marginal land, so these ranches that really didn't have as fertile soil. But the Midwest of the United States, where the majority of our cropping happens, that soil is only so fertile because of the grazing animals that were there, the bison that were there before we destroyed all the bison. And now we're destroying that soil by monocropping and chemical extractive agriculture that's absolutely destroying all of it. So the most regenerative way, the healthiest way that you can produce food is with the combination of plants and animals and actually disturbing the soil as little as possible. Um, because anytime you plow soil, you're actually releasing a lot of carbon, you're disturbing all of the bacteria and fungal networks underground, and that has huge ramifications for, you know, we think of biodiversity, we think of the Amazon rainforest or, or something very tropical and lush with lots of insects and, and birds and things like that, but we really have to be more focused on what's happening underground because we can actually sequester carbon that way. I mean, that's what people are ignoring in all of these debates right now that I'm seeing about, you know, we must reduce carbon, we must reduce carbon. We're not counting on the fact that actually cattle raised on pasture can sequester carbon through their impact on the on the land. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested in that sort of stuff, the sequestration. So, because like, I mean, here in New Zealand, I think you can plant trees and get carbon credits oh for this gosh. sort of thing, right? I am very against that too. I, yeah. Right. So, so I mean, I'd love to hear why. But um, like, should you not then get credits for just having lush soil that's sequestering carbon? Yeah. I mean, I, there, there are so many better ways of measuring whether or not that farmer was benefiting the environment or destroying the environment than whether or not they have a whole bunch of trees planted in a field that now is completely taken out of food production. That is so reductionist and short-sighted and honestly kind of elitist in an environment where we're going to start very soon seeing major food shortages coming up. There's going to be major food riots happening. There already are food riots happening in Ghana. What's happening? What food are they short on? Uh, because of the war in Ukraine, they're the wheat and also fertilizer shortages. So the idea that we're so concerned about this invisible boogeyman of carbon that we're going to take useful land that could be growing the most important food for humans and we're going to take it completely out of production to plant pine trees <laughs> is pretty much the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I've just been sitting through some talks uh, at this conference that I'm at today where that's really what's probably going to happen in, with the New Zealand government. So if you're going to plant trees, at least plant native trees. And if they're going to be native trees and you're going to plant them, at least allow for grazing to happen too so it's not a closed canopy where no grass can grow and no food production can happen. Mm. How much carbon is sequestered by trees compared to soil? Yeah, so grasslands 
have been shown to be a bigger carbon sink than trees. And it's really dependent on what area you're looking at. So New Zealand already has some pretty carbon-rich soil. So the amount of carbon that, in theory, that could be sequestered might be less than in a more brittle area. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to Australia after this to a regenerative ag conference there. They have bigger opportunities for more gains as far as carbon goes. But that doesn't mean that what you're doing here is bad. It just means you already have amazing soil and an amazing system. And even when the soil can sort of technically be saturated with carbon, you can still build more soil on top of that. So that's still more net carbon anyway. This is something that your journalists are not understanding, your government is not understanding, and and largely the livestock sector doesn't really understand either. So that's what I've been doing here is is just trying to sort of explain like, hold on, everyone, like stop being so knee-jerk uh, with your reactions to this idea that everyone must eliminate methane because the methane from cattle is actually a biogenic cycle. It gets recycled in the atmosphere and back into the grass again, back into the photosynthesis process where the fossil fuels that we're burning are not part of a cycle at all. There, there isn't a natural way of reuptaking those. But, you know, the earth has had ruminant animals forever. And, you know, I'm not really sure about your numbers in New Zealand, but in North America, we don't have more ruminants than we did before we got rid of the bison and the elk and everything and sort of settled the country. Mm. We just replaced them with cattle, but we don't have net more methane-emitting animals. So methane really is, I wish people would understand, is a way that these ultra-processed Companies that have a lot of money to be made in vilifying meat are distracting people and especially their shareholders from their poor sales because <laughs> Beyond Meat's sales are not meeting expectations. And so the, the more deflection that they can do, the more deflection the fossil fuel industry can put on cows instead of themselves, the better. Mm. That was a mouthful. Sorry. That was, that was, good. That was a good mouthful. <laughs> So what, I mean, so then what other aspects are there to the sustainability conversation? Yeah, well, I think the biggest one, you know, if you back up a little bit from all this methane talk, is just the fact that not all land can be cropped. And that's a very basic thing that most people don't understand. So about 60% of the agricultural land on the planet is either too hilly or too rocky or too dry to grow crops, but it can support grazing animals. Most of the grazing animals are on that land right now, on this marginal land. I feel like we've got a lot of that land here in New Zealand, a lot of of hills Mm -hmm. that are grazed. Right. Really hard to drive a tractor on a hill. Yeah. Really hard if there's big boulders or big rocks all over your farm to cultivate that in corn or wheat or soy. Really great for growing pasture. There's also a lot of climates that just won't support cropping or can only be cropped for a very small window where grazing animals can graze all year round. Like pretty much almost all of the UK is that way. And a lot of New Zealand is that way too. So New Zealand is perfectly suited for grazing animals. That's the biggest kind of like door opener that I have with people who are very firmly against 
meat. I'm like, that's fine if you personally don't want to eat it. I don't want to tell you what you should or should not eat. But to tell other people that they shouldn't eat meat because you're uninformed about uh, the nutritional benefits that it can have for other people, especially for children, or uh, the fact that these cattle are grazing on land that we can't crop anyway, that's something that we fully need to have a conversation about before we start implementing, you know, meatless Mondays everywhere or, um, you know, pulling meat out of school lunches in, in school, which is what is happening in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, it, that, and that's something I never really thought about um, until watching the film. You know, I, I was like four meatless Mondays and, and um, you know, and, and we still do have the odd meatless meals, right? But I didn't really think about the negative implications of promoting that as healthy because then if someone sees that, you know, especially kids who are so, so impressionable and they'll, and they'll think, okay, well, meat must be really unhealthy for me if they're trying to make this a health day. Yeah, so there's, a, there's multiple issues I have with that. And it's not just, well, you know, what's wrong with feeding kids a salad one day a week? Because that's mm. not what these kids are being served in the no, school. No, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's like you with your um, going gluten-free. You mm -hmm. just assume that whatever you eat now is going to be healthy. But it's like there's so many unhealthy gluten-free options. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah I was eating just ultra-processed Gluten-free food, which yeah. there's even more of today than there was when I was 26. So, but so we've got you know these kids. For example, in the New York City public schools, 70% of these kids are low income. 10% are homeless, and we've got a mayor in New York City that pretends to be vegan. He's not, and it worked great for him. Whatever diet that he actually is eating, he it cured whatever health problems he was having. I mean, and, and oftentimes when people do change their diet, they're kind of changing it from a standard American diet, which is so unhealthy, to, you know, even if you do go vegan it, or vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, whatever you choose, it will significantly improve your health. Yeah, and usually people stop drinking as much. Yeah. They start working out more, like the, paying more attention to their sleep. There's a lot of other things that they change when they change your diet. I mean, just going from processed foods to whole foods is probably the biggest thing you can do, mm. right? So these kids are now, they've got food insecure homes where they're just not getting proper nutrition at home. And now we're pulling the most nutritious piece of that school lunch out because when you look at the rest of the lunch tray that they're getting in these public schools, it's pretty bad. They're not getting like a kale, chickpea, hemp, salad with green goddess dressing or something. They're mm. getting, I actually have photos of what they're actually getting in these vegan Fridays because uh, now now the New York schools are meatless Mondays and vegan Friday. Right. So that's four okay. days in a row of food insecurity for these kids. So that's a huge problem. And, mm. and what they're getting is, you know, a bag of chips that are plant-based, potato chips probably, wow. or corn yeah. chips. And then they're also getting like an ultra-processed burrito in like a plastic wrapper or something like that. It's not great food. Mm. But then there's also the propaganda posters all over the cafeteria telling them that livestock contributes more greenhouse gases than the whole transportation sector, which is completely false, that their kidneys are going to benefit if they just eat beans instead of meat, which is – that's wrong. You know, their chances of getting diabetes will be 15% less if they just eat one meatless meal a day. That's one, not evidence-based, but two, 15% less of a disease risk is statistically insignificant. So these kids are hearing this message that meat is bad. What does a typical kid eat, especially a typical inner city kid? What, what do they eat? They eat burgers, they eat chicken nuggets, they eat 
you know, Subway sandwiches, things like that. So now you're telling them that the only good thing on their plate is the ultra-processed buns and the chips and the Mm. drinks. So what we really need to be doing is attacking the ultra-processed food and the sugar-sweetened beverages, not the meat. The meat is the only thing that actually has nutrition in it. Yeah, I think you actually shared something on your Instagram, maybe even today or something. It was like a the graph that showed obesity rates over the last like 40 years like, or 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. And it was showing that meat consumption, I think, has gone down. However, like highly processed foods have gone up. And vegetable oils too. Yeah. And that's not like olive oil. That's ultra-processed no, seed oils. oils. And, yeah. It's scary stuff, really. You know, there hasn't really, at least I haven't seen that much sort of kickback for this sort of plant-based narrative, which sort of encompasses all of this until your film. And so was there like some, I'm sure you got a lot of kickback and a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, did you get any threats? So I have. I now have someone that reads all my emails before they come in, and and, uh, so I just would rather pay her to do it than look at those emails. I have someone else that runs my Instagram largely, so that's why the DMs on Instagram <laughs> largely get lost. Yeah. Um, but that's how I met you, so that's really great. Yeah. The reason why there are not more people pushing back against this is because it's a really complicated story to really wrap your head around. And I have found that people in the paleo, ancestral health, kind of keto world really get it and are my truest fans because they fully embrace the nutritional impact that animal source foods have on their life, you know, and they've they've had a personal transformation usually because of it. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard for a typical health influencer or just a health-interested person to fully wrap their head around water use and land use and methane and feed conversion rates and all of these things that, I mean, I, I go through it pretty well in, in the book Sacred Cow, but that's a lot to really wrap your head around. And then to debate someone on ethics too. I mean, a lot of animal welfare issues are legitimate. Like the way we handle animals on a lot of farms is not awesome. Mm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't eat meat. That just means we need a better system, right? And so there's a lot of improvements that the livestock industry can be making and are continuing to make and they're learning. But going vegan and eliminating livestock is definitely not the answer. I agree. And, you know, you talk about the system. I mean, it seems like the the answer to the system problem is regenerative agriculture. But, like, can you produce enough food regeneratively for everyone. And that, and right. I, and that's like not just meat, but also... Right. Because at the moment, we've got all these huge, like the monocropping, right, mm-hmm. to, to feed all of the plant-based yeah. foods that we consume as well. Like, can we still produce the same amount of that? Well, I mean, that's a really big question, right? And it gets into a lot of other really complex questions like, is our current population rate sustainable for the planet? But then what are you going to do about that, Mm. right? Tell people not to have children or – I mean, that gets into really dodgy territory, right? So you can't really sort of get into the population control conversation. Didn't go so well for China, you know. So you just can't go there, right? We don't have a calorie production problem in the world. So people are hungry not because of a lack of food production. They're hungry because of political reasons and food distribution problems. We need to focus on producing nutrients, not calories. So we have enough calories for everyone. 
We also have gigantic obesity and type 2 diabetes problems, right? So what we need to shift to is, you know, better quality proteins and better micronutrients. And so, you know, there are plant-based proteins out there. They still can't win on the micronutrients, on, you know, B12 and iron. So those are the two most common nutrient deficiencies worldwide. Plant-based products can't really meet the demand for B12 and for iron. Just a point on that um, from your film, I think when a lot of people think about that, they think, I can can just get supplements. Right. I never really thought about it, but it is such a privilege that we have that we can do that because there are so many communities and countries around the world that are so far from a doctor, so far from a a pharmacy, a drugstore, where they, and that's just out of the question for them. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought that up. I was really happy to include that piece sort of about food equity. And that's been my main focus now is like the ethical dilemma of telling someone else that they shouldn't eat meat because you're uncomfortable with meat. Most people in the world don't have the privilege to push away nutrition. And what we know is in low and middle income countries, when they have more access to meat, they live longer, healthier lives. So telling other people they shouldn't eat meat because you are a well-fed person that has the privilege to buy supplements and pea protein powder and, you know, do all the things that that you're doing. I mean, even most of the world doesn't have access to the variety of fresh fruits and vegetables that you would need for a vegan-type diet. Like, you just can't get that in many places. But people don't travel that much. They're very, you know, living in their cocoons. And their own little think tanks, you know, with everyone thinking exactly like them. And so pulling meat away from children, from women who need it, telling women that they shouldn't own livestock when women in about half the world can't own land, but they can own livestock. Half the world? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So you give these women goats or some chickens, and it can change their financial situation and the nutrition status of the whole family. So this Global Food Justice Alliance, which is the um, nonprofit that I started, is the vehicle that I use to push back against this whole global anti-meat narrative and really focusing on the food equity implications and the elitism of the idea that we need to be eating less or no meat. Mm. It's a hard thing to get your head around, I think, as well, because unless you see that side of the way that people live over there, it's really hard to understand yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, I don't proclaim to understand it. but right. Oh, so you, I want to get back to your question about, you know, can we feed the world? Oh, so, yeah. Uh, so sorry about that. I got a little bit on a no, side, yeah. sidetrack. How are we going to um, feed the world regeneratively? Right. So I did the math for the United States and most regenerative farmers see a massive increase in the carrying capacity of their land. So the carrying capacity is like how much, how many cattle can we support in this field? Because the type of rotational grazing that they do is actually allows the grasses to rest a little bit, the pastures to rest, the soil health increases, and so you can actually produce more food for the cattle on the same amount of land. So a lot of producers are talking about, you know, four times the rate of cattle that they can produce on their regenerative land 
versus, you know, a conventional beef farm where they're they're just letting the cattle have free access to the pastures at all times. And in the film, we talk about the rotations and everything. So for folks that aren't really tracking with this uh, conversation, they should watch the film. That just means physically rotating these uh, physically the stock rotating or them into like, different paddocks or, or fencing off certain aspects of the paddock so that they are moving them. Um, right, logistically which mimics natural the farm. herds, which again is why the paleo world gets this so much because they like, oh, we should eat a more evolutionarily appropriate diet, this more ancestral way we, of nature. This is the idea with this type of farming is that, you know, these wild herds were meant to be moving constantly and all of that. So for the U.S., if you factor in just a 30% increase, so not four times, not 400, but a 30% increase in the amount of animals you're allowed to have or you can support on the pasture in addition to not farming all of the corn that you would normally feed to cattle in feedlots and then taking some of the land that the government is paying farmers not to farm right now because we have that going on in, in the U.S. as well, putting that back into production we do have enough land in the U.S. to grass finish all the cattle if we wanted to and not feedlot finish them. And we could do that in a regenerative way. So I haven't done the numbers for the whole world, but I know for the U.S. we could do that. I think that the focus needs to be on how can we grow the highest quality food in a way that's going to be also the best for the environment. And that means a lot more pasture-based grazing and a lot less monocrop cereals. Mm. How do you do that together? Because, so a lot of the monocropping uses animal inputs anyway, right? Usually it's synthetic for monocropping. Oh, okay. Yeah. But one of the great ways if, you know, if we're going to produce cereals, I'm not saying that like the world should never eat bread again. There's a lot, bread is a traditional food for a lot of people. I don't eat bread, but I'm not going to tell other people no, they can eat bread. If we are going to be farming things like wheat, once the wheat is harvested, you can actually run cattle on that field to eat down the rest of the wheat stalks, and they could be fertilizing the ground. You could be converting that what you call crop residue, which is the the leftover stalks from the wheat. Instead of just plowing them into the ground, those can go into an animal like a cow and be converted into protein, which is pretty amazing. Mm. So these kind of dual use where you have cropping and livestock on the same land is a win-win for everything. Yeah. One thing I often think about is, wouldn't it be great if we could just, from like, you know, part of that ethical side of things is, couldn't we just like let the livestock live until it naturally dies mm. and then just eat it? Yeah. And there's a big movement in the UK right now for rewilding. So, you know, why don't we just let nature take over and not have livestock on it and we'll just farm everything you know, on the arable parts, but we'll let the the pastures go. So that's a similar kind of mm. thing. The problem with that is, well, there's a couple problems with that, but the main thing is if you've ever watched National Geographic. I have. You have. Mm. So you want to describe to me how what natural death looks like? Because it's actually a lot less humane than just having one bad day at a slaughterhouse. Well, I don't know. It's, that'd be an interesting thing. I don't think we see uh, like natural deaths in like farmed animals, right? I don't really know what that looks like because I, I imagine they probably get some sort of sickness. When I was living on my farm, there were coyotes that would come oh, right. and take the sheep. Uh, so that is not an awesome way to go. 
Well, here, here in New Zealand, we don't have coyotes. We, I mean, we're very. There's not really anything that comes in and would kill our livestock. I think okay. it would just be they just get old. They would just okay. get old and they just fall over. But they don't just like have a heart attack in the middle of the night and just close their eyes, right? They're gonna. I don't know. Do they? <laughs> I really don't I mean, know. I guess some people die that way, and some animals might die that way too. But, you know, there's going to be predatory birds that are going to come. Usually the animals are still alive when that happens. Mm. So it's not awesome to be, like, eaten out from your intestines when you're still right. alive. So it's kind of like you'd have to do some form of euthanasia at the end of the animal's life. Or something, you know? If, if you want them to live. I mean, it, life is but great when like, you're young and healthy. Yeah. Right? It's not as great when, I mean, that's like this this whole, you know, I always laugh when I see all these influencers talking about longevity, longevity, and, you know, eating less protein for longevity. You actually want to be strong and have good muscles. I would take that in a slightly shorter life than being bedridden and living to 150 right? Sure. Um, and I think some, also some of that science around that protein intake for longevity is, is not clear and it's not, I think that's a developing field and I don't think either side of that argument really can prove it either way. So yeah, yeah. currently. Yeah. Right. Mm. So natural death is not a sufferless death or l- less suffering death mm. necessarily. Yeah. I mean, humans have the ability to be humane in the way they can kill things where, you know, lions and tigers and boa constrictors and all the other falling off a cliff and, you know, not dying quite yet, but mostly dead. Those are all not fun ways to go. Yeah. And then this whole rewilding idea. I mean, what are you going to do with rural communities? These people that depend on the land, do you make everyone move into a city and work in a factory instead? And, you know, who gets to eat those animals? You know, in places where there are coyotes or wolves, should only the coyotes get the good food? You know, what about me? Do I not get to eat it? You know, so there's that problem. And then also we just don't have the large tracts of land to really support a proper healthy herding behavior. So these animals would likely overgraze or undergraze certain areas. It just wouldn't be a healthy sort of Serengeti type situation that just can't exist anymore because of human encroachment. Mm. Yeah, we're really destroying a lot of stuff, aren't we? We're ruining this planet. Well, we don't need to, right? Yeah. Uh, we can save it. Right. We can save it. I'm sure we can. Um, no, I do. I do truly believe that we can, and I do believe that regenerative agriculture is a, is one of the you know, biggest ways in which we can do it. What do you really want people to understand when they when they watch your film or they listen to you speak? Like, what what is the main thing that you want them to understand? That meat is really healthy. It contains nutrients that are either completely unavailable or really hard to get from plant source foods, and it's irreplaceable. Animal source foods are critical, especially for women and children, and those are the ones who are are really going plant-based faster than men, in my opinion. Yeah. And that cattle can provide amazing nutrition for humans, converting food we can't eat on land we can't farm. And so to take a closer look at the science, you know, read my book, uh, Sacred Cow, understand that this is really a complicated argument and 
the older I get, the more context and nuance I see in things, the more I understand that nothing is black and white. And these simplistic solutions to these complex problems are meatless Mondays or, you know, going vegan altogether or just eating these plant-based foods. There's a lot of special interest behind those messages. And the media is not doing a very good job on fair reporting and, and really showing that the benefits that livestock have to our health, to the planet, and also to the rural communities that are, you know, producing all this really healthy food for people. Farmers have gotten just so hammered lately, and they're really down. We need to pump them back up again and let them know that what they're doing, it's hard work, and it's really valuable, important work. Absolutely. I mean, they're a cornerstone to the whole food production system, you know, Mm -hmm. our life. Well, thank you very much for your time today. How do people track you down? How do they follow what you're doing? So I'm on Instagram at Sustainable Dish, and then I also have at Global Food Justice, and I have some really cool videos coming out with a young woman that we're starting like a TikTok channel as well. She's cool. going to be debunking meat, and she's 19, and she's amazing. So I'm really excited about that. People can um, support that on Patreon as well and, and get my podcast. So I have a podcast called Sustainable Dish. And then they can check out, I have a couple of paleo cookbooks too, but I'm most passionate about the book Sacred Cow and the film Sacred Cow. Get on my newsletter list. Um, I'm quite vocal in my newsletter about what I think about things like these, you know, I'm going to write this weekend about what I think about planting trees on grazing land and taking it completely out of production just to have trees to sequester carbon. It's just ridiculous. So Mm. I'm going to be talking about that kind of stuff and more in my newsletter. Great. Uh, Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.